From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While there were thousands of mock drafts and projections put out into the world over the course of the last few months, last week in Dallas, we saw the only picks that truly mattered. Now that the NFL draft has come and gone, it's time to assess how the Gators fared and discuss Taven Bryan, Antonio Callaway, and more with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. We'll also chat about the reunion of the 1998 Florida baseball team, the latest news on Jalen Hudson, a championship performance on the Lynx, and the commission on college basketball. Plus, softball's Nicole DeWitt talks about her senior weekend and some of her greatest memories from a charmed career. But first, there were no shortage of surprises in the NFL draft, especially some involving former stars from the Swamp. To open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we ran down the landing spots for the Gators hoping to live out their dreams at the next level. Well, I mean, the big name, obviously, Taven Bryant went in the first round uh, to Jacksonville, joining another uh, former Gator who was a first rounder over there along the defensive line and Dante Fowler Jr. back in uh, 2015. And, you know, Jacksonville has liked the Gators over the years. Uh, he's, what, their fifth player they've chosen in the first round, uh, what, joining Fred Taylor, Derek Carvey, Reggie Nelson, and Fowler. Uh, so, I mean, they've always uh, – come over to Gainesville, scouted heavily over here, obviously. They like Taven Bryan, and it was a pick uh, when you look at Taven Bryan. It's a, it's a pick based on potential, and he's the kind of guy that has uh, upside. NFL loves upside, and Jacksonville's a, a pretty good defensive unit right now, so I don't know how much he'll be an impact player his first year, but he'll certainly be uh, in a system where they develop players and uh, part of some uh, a good defensive unit over there. After that, one of the biggest surprises for me, Adam, was uh, Duke Dawson going 56 overall to New England. I didn't expect him to go that high, uh, but Florida's, uh, you know, they don't call it DBU for anything the last few years. He's the sixth Gator defensive back selected in the last three drafts. And uh, boy, that says a lot about uh, that talent that we've talked a lot about uh, over the years. And Duke, uh, he's going to have a chance to go up there and play uh, the premier franchise in the NFL. So uh, he's, got, he's got his opportunity. After that, you had uh, what Marcel Harris was the sixth round, Johnny Townsend fifth round. And then the big one uh, in the fourth round, the one that probably got the most news coverage was Antonio Callaway. And I think, if I recall correctly, last week we had some discussion on Antonio Callaway. And I remember there was one guy on the podcast, Adam, who was really adamant that Antonio Callaway would likely get drafted <laughs> and have an opportunity in the film. And there were two other guys who said they didn't see that. So I'm just going to let the two other guys maybe chime in on that pick. I'll gladly chime in on the pick by saying the team that drafted Antonio Callaway's won one out of 32 games the last two seasons. So <laughs> Scott Carter's clearly qualified to be working in the front office of the Cleveland Browns. Right <laughs> Obviously, if the guy can um, reboot his uh, his career and get things on the straight and narrow, and and you know he, he talked of in his uh, interviews with the with the Cleveland uh, media, talked about how like he's everything's changed for him since the birth of his daughter and all that stuff. And that all, that all sounds great. And let's hope, let's hope that's right. But 
I think, you know, whatever Antonio's Callaway, Antonio Callaway's situation is in his career situation will obviously play out for everyone to see. You know, a, a fourth, fourth round pick, certainly higher than probably a lot of people would have would have anticipated, except for Scott, of course. Um, <laughs> but uh, he'll have a chance to get in there and, and he'll be in the he'll be in the same draft class with Baker Mayfield. Uh, he'll be working with Denzel Ward. I mean, uh, by all accounts, uh, Cleveland had a very productive draft. Uh, having said that, I think if you have the first pick and the fourth pick in the draft and you don't get either the best offensive player or the best defensive player in the draft, I question what's some decision-making in there. And to that, I question the Antonio Callaway pick as well. So, uh, Adam, you're, you're free to weigh in, but uh, I stand by what I said. Scott stands by what he said. And Antonio Callaway can certainly make me look like a fool by going out there because God knows the guy's talented. Uh, let's just hope his, uh, his decision-making um, will now catch up to uh, his on-field talent. The question that I would have, and there's no way to know because it's done and it's over. You mentioned, Chris, Cleveland. This is a team that's lost 31 out of the last 32 games. What I wonder is, would someone else have taken a flyer on Callaway that high? Or is it more of a reflection of the fact that the Cleveland Browns are a desperate franchise who basically have to take gambles like this to try and get relevant and start winning games. I think you can even look at at the Baker Mayfield uh, pick with that as well. This is a team that sort of has to choose talent over character just by nature of they need to find a way to do something different. So I was surprised he went that high, but if you had said he's going to be a fourth-round pick, which team is going to, to make that call? you would have naturally said Cleveland because they're the one that has to take the most risk given the state of their franchise. Yeah, you just wonder about the wisdom of taking risks because they took Johnny Manziel a couple years ago. How'd that yes, work did not work uh, out well. I don't know what their draft board said. If their draft board had Antonio Callaway as the first or second best receiver, like they're saying over there, if they had the same thing, saying the same stuff about Baker Mayfield and what have you, then uh, you know you have to be true to your principles and true to your draft board. I have to cover the NFL as long as I did. You do know that stuff. You you have to believe in the people who are doing all that stuff. So uh, that's the route they went. Obviously, Antonio Callaway can make plays. Um, I think if we had this, if we rewound maybe a year ago and we were having this conversation, I w- would have been talking about how much of a how phenomenal of a, of a slot receiver he would have been. And we probably would have been talking about him as a as a first or second day kind of player. So, uh, again, this is all about decision making, Adam. So uh, uh, let's hope that he has some real good decisions um, in his future. Um, if he doesn't, he won't be in the NFL very long. Well, you guys said it. This is your classic high-risk, high-reward pick. Sometimes they turn out great. Sometimes they don't. Chris, I remember you covered a guy with the Bucks who is one of the best high-risk, high-reward players in the history of the NFL draft. His name is Warren Sapp. Remember, I don't, Warren Sapp was a guy that maybe didn't have as prolonged issues as Antonio Callaway in college. But right before the draft, very similar to Antonio Callaway, red flags were raised again because of a failed uh, marijuana test. Uh, and Warren Sapp, I don't know if anyone would ever describe him as a model citizen throughout his NFL career. Uh, he was always kind of surly with the media and had his issues sometimes. But boy, the guy ended up having a great career and he's in the Hall of Fame now. That's a long way for Antonio Callaway to get to right now. And like you guys said, hopefully he's surrounded himself by the kind of people that can bring out the best in him and that he learns something because, uh, you know, every year we talk about these kind of players in the draft. And quite frankly, most of them do probably, if you were to go back and review 
most of them probably do end up not having a lot of success, but SAP and I'm sure there's others I'm just forgetting, but some of them do, you know. One of the things when you take a player that has character issues, the biggest question is what what organization is he going to? You think I, I think of New England and I think New England took on Randy Moss. Mm-hmm. Okay. New England took on uh Corey Dillon. New England took on LeGarrette Blunt. All these guys had baggage. But when you're in an organization, you're in the building where everybody's doing things a certain way, and most more than likely it's the right way, um, that pans out. Cleveland doesn't have that history, so right now, I'm, frankly, they don't deserve the benefit of that doubt. Now they got some new guys running the organization. We'll see what that goes. But uh, Scott's right, you know, risk reward. You know, Randy Moss tumbled down the the draft board, and certainly that paid dividends for the Minnesota Vikings to get him way down at 21. Um, Johnny Menzel tumbled down the draft boards, didn't pay dividends to draft him. So popular thing is we'll see. So this is a, this is certainly a, a we'll see kind of thing for the Cleveland Browns. But this is a FloridaGators.com website, Adam. So, you know, uh, Antonio Callaway gave the fans here, frankly, maybe the biggest uh, thrill of the last few years on the football field when you think about it. I'd say that moment was I would even rank that over to Hail Mary pass yeah, because so it was a good game yes. and uh, it was a big win and it kept them unbeaten early in the year when they climbed the poles. Yeah, I think it was the biggest moment for Florida football as far as that home game since probably uh, Tim Tebow left. Yeah, m- maybe so in terms of in terms of a big play at home. And you know, I, I would put it over that Hail Mary because of the uh, the circumstances at the time. It was Jim McElwain's first season and what have you. So uh, we'll wish him the best of luck and see what happens. Yeah, and to your point before we move on, Antonio Callaway will forever be known for that play and for many other plays here because inevitably, I mean, you guys, you watch Sunday Night Football, you see when those guys come on the screen, they say where they went to school. For better or worse, Antonio Callaway is always going to be tied to the Florida Gators. So you want him to succeed because he reflects back on your brand. And that, you know, it's inevitably that's just the way that it goes. So certainly we'll see what happens with him and, and you hope that that works out. But I'll tell you this, it will be interesting in Cleveland with Baker Mayfield, Antonio Callaway, Nick Chubb. It may not work, but it'll certainly be fascinating to watch. There's no question about that. Uh, You know, once the draft is over, you also have a lot of these free agents that get snapped up pretty quickly, including guys who we thought might get drafted. So let's run through some of those guys as far as former Gators that are at least can have a chance to get into camp somewhere. I think of those guys, the biggest name is Eddie Pinedo. Uh, the kicker, there was a lot of talk that, you know, he would get drafted and making him and Johnny Townsend uh, the first, what, punter-kicker duo uh, to get drafted from the same school in the same year. Uh didn't happen, but guess what? The Raiders quickly snatched him up as an undrafted free agent. So him and Townsend are, are still going to be together. Uh, after him, DeAndre Goolsby, the tight end, who I thought always had some potential. He ended up with the Lions. Joseph Putu going to the Falcons, the defensive back who really didn't play much last year. If you, if I had to say of all the, the guys who signed quickly after the draft, undrafted, he would be the guy who surprised me the most. And then Mark Thompson, uh, a guy who, you know, he is being invited to the Ravens camp, uh, rookie mini camp this weekend. I saw a tweet. Now, is it true or not, Scott, that Mark Thompson's aunt Works on the jersey, sews names on the jerseys for the Baltimore Ravens, and ends up sewing the name of her nephew on the Baltimore Ravens jersey. How about that? Someone, yeah, someone connected there. Uh, he, he's one of those guys. I mean, physically impressive guy. I think he's scouting wise. They say he's a little slow to the hole. 
stances in the backfield a little too much. But when he gets us some speed going, he's a hard guy to tackle. And he's he's from up in that area, so he's going to get a chance close to home with the Ravens. Uh, Malik Zaire, the quarterback, who got so much attention when he came in here last year, Adam. He, obviously, we know how that worked out. He, he played sparingly, ended up getting hurt. But, you know, he's going to get a chance with the Jags in a rookie minicamp. And then two other guys are getting chances. Uh, Brandon Powell with the line, so he'll be with Goolsby. And Nick Washington with the Raiders. So uh, the Raiders have got a Gator contingent out there with Townsend, Pinedo, and Nick Washington. And, you know, we see this every year, Adam. Uh, the guys who don't get drafted, especially from school like Florida, they usually latch on as an undrafted free agent at one of these rookie minicamps. And at that point, you still got to work to get out your way maybe onto the practice squad. Uh, it's some guys have stuck around for a while, like Frankie Hammond, uh, the former receiver here. He's made a career out of those kind of positions. Hasn't done a lot in NFL, but has been on an NFL roster uh, for a few years now. And that's why these guys are hoping to just get that opportunity to get out on the field on a Sunday and see if he can stick. Quentin Dunbar was a wide yeah. receiver here at Florida and is now a starting defensive back in Washington. So. Yeah. Anything can happen. That's a great example there. And of the guys that we just ran down, which one of those guys had the best chance? I'm going to put my money on Pinedo because I think he's a quality kicker. I think he he could really stick in the NFL for a while if he stays consistent. And he, he, one thing about him, he certainly didn't lack confidence. I can hear it. I can hear it right now out there in uh, Oakland or soon to be Vegas. Gators didn't kick a lot of ass. <laughs> But they had some damn kickers, and we got them here at the Raiders now, okay? You know what I mean? Ten years removed from covering uh, covering John Gruden, the impression is still strong there for, for Chris Harry. Very impressive. Spider 2, why banana? I love me. <laughs> we talked last week about big, big home weekends for baseball and softball. Mm-hmm. Softball did not have it easy on senior weekend. They did pull through, ultimately came from behind on Sunday to take two of three from LSU. They remain in first place. Uh, a chance this weekend to clinch the SEC title and would actually be the first Gator team in, in history to win four consecutive SEC crowns, only the second ever to do that. So we'll talk more about that next week to see if they pull that off up at Missouri. As far as baseball goes, they also took two of three from the Tigers, albeit of the Auburn variety. Uh, they had to win the rubber match as well to take that series, but a good thing they did, Scott, because there was a lot of uh, former luminaries in attendance for the Gators as part of the reunion of the 98 College World Series team. Yeah, Adam, the 1998 Gators, the uh, the first one in school history to go out to Omaha as the number one national seed, uh, featured, uh, what, four future major leaguers, guys that had some success there. Brad Wilkerson obviously was a star of the team and national player of the year, went on to have a pretty decent career uh, for a few years. David Ross, who that was his only season at Florida after coming over from Auburn. But, you know, he went on and we all know his uh, his lasting legacy in the majors was, you know, winning World Series titles as a lovable veteran with the Red Sox and Cubs at the end of his career. He's the, the guy from Dancing with the Stars, right? <laughs> well, yeah, some people would, I guess, remember him more for that. I'm of a, I'm of a different crowd. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, one guy he used to catch was uh, Josh Fogg, a pitcher. And then, of course, Mark Ellis, a really good infielder for many years with the Oakland A's and Los Angeles Tigers. So you had that core group uh, on that 98 roster. Uh, they won uh, 46 games that year, I think, 46 and 18. Uh, they go out to Omaha, and you know what? They, they actually 
score 23 runs in two games out there, but they get beat by uh, what USC and Arizona or Mississippi State while they're out there. Their stay was short, but you know, after last week, these guys came back. You could tell how close they've remained over the years for most of them. Sometimes, Adam, when they have these kind of reunions with teams on campus, you know, if you get a dozen people back, 15, it's good. I think they had like 30 back. Wow. Uh, it just shows you, you know, it was an important uh, event for these uh, guys to come back to town and to reconnect. And, and all of them talked about how much they were looking forward to seeing Andy Lopez. You know, Andy Lopez uh, lasted at Florida until 2001. Uh, then he departed and later won a College World Series in 2012 with Arizona. And, of course, he retired uh, shortly thereafter and was recently inducted into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, one of the great college baseball coaches of all time because he also won a national title before he ever got to Florida uh, at Pepperdine. So uh, players really respected him. And, you know, when you're that age and you're in college and you're playing for a coach who is very demanding, Andy Lopez has a reputation of running some of the hardest practices and uh, just uh, he, he was huge on developing character and accountability off the field and performing on the field. And, you know, from listening to some of these guys talk, I mean, he was a very demanding coach, but they got results. Uh, and 20 years later, those guys were so glad that Andy Lopez came back. He had not been in Gainesville since 2001 uh, after his final season. So it had been, what, uh, 17 years almost uh, since he had been back here. And, uh, you know, they, they played some golf on Friday morning. They they were honored that night at the game against Auburn. And, uh, you know, you could just tell – guys were enjoying themselves and uh, certainly goes down as one of the, the greatest teams in Florida baseball history. And as far as the 2018 team, they continue to lead the SEC. They're number one in the country. They have a big series this weekend at Texas A&M. We're still waiting for uh, definitive news on what's going to happen with Jalen Hudson. That'll shape a lot of what happens with the Gators going forward. But we did get a little tidbit this week, Chris, about maybe where things are headed with him. Yeah, uh, the NBA players or the NBA uh, draft people that run the, the, the combine in Chicago, they extended an invitation to Jalen Hudson. That wasn't a surprise. He certainly earned that. Um, what that means is is really no different than what it meant a week ago. He'll go to the combine. He Again, he has not hired an agent. If he goes to the combine and plays well, that's that would be good for him, obviously. If he goes to the combine and does not play well, he's going to get additional feedback to the feedback he's already gotten. But he is still very much in play to return to the University of Florida next year, uh, where he would be the leading leading returning scorer on the team. He doesn't show up on a lot of mock drafts, Adam. So uh, he's got to go there and, and and open some eyes. He's got to show people the same some of the same offensive moves that he showed at times last year. His ability to shoot the three, his ability to get his own shot. Um, got to show that his defense has indeed has indeed improved, which it did over the course of the season. But again, I, I can't emphasize it. There's a lot of speculation just because he's going to the combine that it's a fait accompli that he's going into the that he's going to stay in the NBA draft, and that's just that's just not the case. It's it's we're we're several weeks away from that being decided. We don't have a chance to talk a lot of golf here on the podcast, but we do like to highlight when certain achievements take place, and that was the case this past week and an SEC championship for the men's golf team, Chris. For the second year in a row, last year it was Alejandro Tosti. This year, Andy Zhang, uh, sophomore from Orlando by way of China. This is a kid, I wrote about him actually a couple weeks ago because this was the number one uh, junior player in the country 
when he committed to Florida several years ago. Interesting story. When J.C. Deacon was being interviewed to replace Buddy Alexander as the men's golf coach a few years ago, he told Jeremy Foley in the interview process, you get me to Florida, I'm going to get Andy Zhang to Florida. Hmm. And this is a guy who in 2012 played in the U.S. Open as an amateur, played with Bubba Watson in a practice round. Um, he had guys in the store. If you go back and look, see my story on FloridaGators.com, I wrote a couple weeks ago. This is a guy who Tiger Woods was getting questions about him. Roy McIlroy was getting questions about him. This a kid who was 14 years old at the time, the youngest player in the history of the U.S. Open, having the best players in the world being asked about him. And, you know, he ended up play- he didn't qualify. Uh, he played two rounds in the U.S. Open, ends up coming to Florida. And he had gone his whole uh, uh, nearly two years without uh, winning a tournament here at, at Florida. And yet it was it was assumed not only assumed but announced that he was turning pro after this year. And J.C. Deacon said, I'm telling you, he's only got four tournaments left. He's going to win one of these, even though he hadn't won one. And what does he do? He goes and wins the SEC uh, championship. Good for him. Uh, good for Andy Zhang. That's a good kind of springboard for this uh, Florida team, which last year really was in great position going into the postseason and absolutely had a catastrophic eighth-place finish in the NCAA regional. The sights are obviously much higher. They didn't even get make it to the NCAA championships last year. So, uh they have that on their minds, but they also have an SEC champion to kind of ride that wave into the postseason. And uh, we'll see what happens, obviously, with the with that team. But J.C. Deacon is certainly uh, excited about the prospects of of his golf team, maybe having one of its one of the better finishes in his four seasons since he's been here. Moving on to our PAT for this week, it's actually something that was sort of last week, but I, I don't know. I just got so excited about the Avengers, which, by the way, Chris's assessment of what would happen in the movie turned out to be quite accurate. So I'll give him credit for that. By predicting buildings were going to blow up in a superhero movie. Yeah, I get a lot of credit for that. It was, it was quite bold. It was quite bold. Yeah. Um, so this commission for college basketball, which was fronted by Condoleezza Rice, had a lot of uh, legends of the game on there, trying to figure out how to help reform the game in the face of the scandal that's really shaken the sport over the course of the last year and, and exposed some rotting at the core of it over a longer period of time, not just in last year. Uh a lot of people think this is sort of a sham. Some think there's some validity to this, and it could actually be a force for change. I'm curious what you guys think about this and its potential impact. I, I spoke to Jeremy Foley at length about it, wrote a story about it. People can go back and look at it from FloridaGators.com last week. And this was a committee, again, like you said, chaired by former Secretary of State and you know National Security Advisor uh, Condoleezza Rice. Grant Hill, David Robinson, uh, Gene Smith, the the, uh, Ohio State Athletic Director, it had John Thompson III on it. There are a lot of heavy hitters on this thing. And uh, uh, Jeremy Foley was had a front row seat for the thing and saw how it played out. And, uh, you know, some some stuff that just came out of it. They're trying to get rid of the one and done. They won't be able to put uh, players in position if they go into the draft and don't get drafted. They can go back to college, assuming they don't hire an agent, things like that. Um, But. What Jeremy talked about was early on, they, they talked to everybody. They had coaches in there. They had apparel companies in there and shoe companies in there and AAU coaches and these so-called street agents. Stuff. They talked to all these people to try to get a baseline from which to work with. And whatever came out of it, and, and there's a lot of people took a lot of shots at it. it. It got some criticism for saying it probably didn't do very much. But what Jeremy talked about and what Jeremy was pretty much uh, uh, was banging a drum about, as he told me, was the enforcement element of this whole thing just has to have more teeth. I mean, when you look, there, there has to be 
ramifications because if a guy gets caught, if a team gets caught breaking the rules, it can't be, hey, they're not going to the postseason next year. This It, it can't be, uh, uh, okay, this coach has to sit out for uh, 10 games or something. There has to be some kind of a, a deterrent that is going to matter in the long run. And that's, they're talking about like suspending a coach for life, hmm. putting the school on postseason probation for five years, not one. Wow. Um, stuff like that, that'll really like, uh, step up and wave a flag and say, Whoa, we can't do this anymore. I mean, let's be honest. That's what happened with SMU in the eighties. Has SMU been relevant in football since? I'm sure people in Dallas would argue that point right now, but I mean, it's certainly, you don't talk about the Pony Express anymore unless you're watching 30 for thirties and stuff. So if the, uh, the enforcement process is going to work in the eyes of this committee, it, there has to be some really severe penalties on some of these infractions that are going on. Yeah, I mean, this is one that I'm going to agree with pretty much everything that was just said and maybe add to it, hopefully. I, I do I do think that we're in an age where transparency is, I think, more important than ever. And, and college sports, the reason it gets such a bad uh, look because sometimes it's like the, the enforcement part of it is just wagging its tail, not doing any chasing. I mean... There's really, like you said, there's no teeth in any of this. Uh, so what does really deter these people from cheating or paying players? And, and the NCAA, the, oftentimes they don't even act on this stuff or even find out about it until the media exposes it. And then they, it's totally reactionary and it just gives them a bad look. And you either have rules and enforce them or you don't. You might as well just open up everything if you're not actually going to enforce them. So I don't know where it's going to go, guys, but I do. I am glad that there's some, I think, smart people, some people who have the uh, sport in its their best interest, taking a deep look at it. I don't expect anything to drastically change in the next year or two, but I hope within maybe five years there's some there's some things in place to where it is a totally different looking. Uh, landscape because i just think it needs some changing and if i my final thought really is just it's it's an antiquated system that has been antiquated for probably 15 or 20 years it's time for a change well that is a wrap for this week but as always want to encourage everybody to stay tuned to what scott and chris are doing on floridagators.com and also at gators scott at gators chris on the Twitter. Uh, Scott will be tracking baseball this weekend on the road. I know Chris will be keeping up with softball as they look to make some history. So uh, we'll be following both of you guys, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you, Adam. All right, thanks, Adam. The time between arriving on campus to reaching the end of your college career is often much shorter than most anticipate, but reality tends to hit home on senior day. Softball celebrated another remarkably accomplished class last weekend as Kaylee Kavistad, Alicia Acasio, Janelle Wheaton, and Nicole DeWitt are on the verge of getting a championship ring for all five fingers. Before wrapping up their regular season at Missouri, we spoke to DeWitt about her remarkable career and began by asking what memories will endure from her senior day on Saturday. The people that were there and like the atmosphere that we had, like obviously we lost, but I don't think that's something that we can dwell on. But since it's such a special day, like seeing my family there and it was like the first time that my whole family's ever been to Gainesville together. Like my brother's first trip to Florida, my sister's first trip, and then my parents never came together 
to see me there. So I think that's something that I'll always remember, just having my whole family there supporting me and just seeing like my teammates who are like constantly supporting me as well. And I've been on the other side of it for the past three years and seeing how those seniors feel and like now finally experiencing it. It's just something that will always have a special place in my heart. LSU did not make it easy for you guys. You mentioned they did get the win on Saturday, but you ultimately took the series and you did that by coming from behind on Sunday in a really unlikely way. So what did it mean not just to win the series, but to do it with so much adversity? I think that it's just great to see how far this team has um, overcome so many things and how I think seeing us come from behind on such a huge weekend, not just because it is senior weekend, but like also for SEC terms and like there's so many things that are just lying down on these little games and being able to come back from such a huge inning that could have easily shut us down and um, seeing us all come together as one and not going up there being selfish and just each of us passing the bat along was so cool to see because we haven't really been this like comeback team so seeing how we can play in these like high level games and like these post game feeling games is so exciting. If we can rewind things a bit, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? So I am from Garden Grove, California, which is Southern California. It's pretty close to the beach. Um, I have an older sister. She is 25, going to turn 26 in a couple days. She played softball, which is why I got into softball when I was like four years old. Um, I have a younger brother who is 17, so he's finishing his junior year of high school. He plays football, and he runs track for them, too. So so a very yeah. athletic family where I guess uh, there was always a, a lot of competition? Yes, a lot. <laughs> and what about, what about your parents? What was their, what was their background? <laughs> so my mom actually played softball. When we were younger, we they, she even played slow pitch softball. So that was fun to watch. And then my dad, he played all sorts of sports. He was, he's actually the reason why I wear number 23. So me and my brother were 23. My sister kind of wanted to do her own thing and she chose 27. But um, my dad played baseball, football, basketball, like you name it, he did it all. You said your, your sister was playing before you and that's what got you into it at a young age. But at what point did it become clear this could be a big part of your future? Um, so I actually quit softball when I was like 11 or 12, just because it was so much for me to handle. And then I took like one summer off, which is an, it's not even that much time to take off. But I took a summer off and my parents could just see how bored I was, how I wasn't enjoying anything. So then I got back into it. And I think when I was like 13 or 14, that's when I really realized that this is something that I want to do. And like, I never really realized how I could make a career out of it, but I think I was maybe in seventh or eighth grade, and that's when they started co- talking about colleges, and I was like, you guys are crazy, but then like these big-time schools were coming and looking at me, and I was like, wow, I can really make this dream of mine to play in college happen, so I think when I was about in eighth grade is when I really realized it. Well, then before you even came to school, you had a chance to play with the junior national team. And I know mm-hmm. that's taking you to all sorts of interesting parts of the world. What are your favorite places that softball has taken you? One of the really cool places was I was in travel ball and we actually went and played in Canada. And the competition was all right, but just like exploring and seeing how many different teams can come from all over the world and play in this tournament. It was so cool to see. And then we actually got to see like 
the Canadian team play and the USA team play. So like that was really huge for me. And then with Team USA, I think playing in in Irvine, which is like obviously right down the street for me. It wasn't the first time playing there, but like seeing how so many people come and they're supportive of like Team USA, even though I was on the junior team, like there was so many people there like watching and rooting for like Team Mexico, Team Canada, and like just seeing how much this sport has grown is is something that's so amazing to see. When it came time for a college decision, you talked about all the people that were coming to see you. There are lots of great programs out West. That's where most of the historically great programs are. What mm-hmm. made you want to come all the way across the country to Florida? I always followed the Gators since the beginning of high school, even before I was committed and stuff. So um, I think I just loved what Coach Walton brought to his program. And then as it got closer to me making a decision my sophomore year, they were one of the top softball teams. I love the coaching staff, like the atmosphere. Gator Nation is amazing. And then they were also top five, I believe, in what I wanted to do at the time, which was be a, become a speech pathologist. I mean, obviously things have changed, but like that played a huge role in my decision as well. See, it's interesting is I guess you're at about the age where you would have seen the explosion of softball and the SEC on TV and all the games being televised and the College World mm-hmm. Series really blowing up. So which Gators, do you remember which players you, you saw on TV and said, I want to go there and, and be like them? No, I, I just know that like, because I played on the same travel ball team as like Katie Medina. So I remember watching her and that was like a huge thing for me. And I was like, wow, I can be one of those girls and like travel all the way across the country and play for like a team like the Gators. So I know that was a huge deal for me. But like people specifically, I don't know. I remember like watching Stacey Nelson and her play and like Francesca and Nea. They were just so much fun to watch. And like those were like the key players that I enjoyed watching. California players as well. So I'm sure that just yeah. it even <laughs> yeah. more. So there must be a little bit of a trend there. <laughs> <laughs> so when you came in, you won a national championship your first year as the second of the back to back for the program. I talked to Jackson Coar about this last week and about the way that teams have reacted to baseball now that they've got that national championship uh, banner. Have you seen a difference in the way that teams compete against you when you're right after that national championship as opposed to when you're not coming off of a championship? Is there a difference there? No, I think being a Gator, you're going to get everyone's best game, no matter who you're playing, no matter what the situation is. Like it could be a fall game. You're going to get that team's best game, no matter what. So it doesn't matter if you're coming off of that national championship or you didn't even make it to the World Series or any like of the circumstances that we've been in. I think we're always going to get that team's best game. Now, you've had some really big moments, some huge hits throughout your career. When you think back on those, which ones do you reflect on most often? Which ones take maybe the the top spots in that order? I think definitely the one my freshman year when we were playing Auburn at the World Series. That was one of the most special ones to me just because it sent us to the final championship series and... We were in extra innings. That was my first hit of the game because I was struggling like I was pinch hit for. And then I was re-entered to hit in that spot. So I think that one is most special because like Coach Walton believed in me. My teammates all believed in me. So that one is definitely number one. The next one I'd probably say would be um, my home run against Oklahoma State last year in regionals. Just because we were coming back from a loss and we knew that we needed to jump on that team early in the game and we just so happened to score two runs right off the bat. So those are probably my top two. 
when you think about teammates that you've had, and this is could be past, could be present, which ones have you learned the most from over the course of your career? Um, definitely Kelsey Stewart has taught me a lot just because of the amazing player that she is. And like coming in, she was the second baseman, which is where, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to play second base, but that's the position that I came in as. And just learning so much from her, like communicating wise, like how Coach Walton likes things. Like she just kind of brought me in, took me under her wing and like um, taught me everything that I needed to know when running the Gator defense and stuff like that. Um, Katie Medina has taught me a lot. I've learned a lot from Lauren Hager. Not, we're not similar players at all, but the competitiveness that she has and like she's always wanting to get better no matter what. So I think I've learned a lot from her. And then um, Amanda and Kelly have both taught me a lot just because of the success that they both bring in and like their hard work ethic. And they just both strive to be greater no matter what the situation is. And like, they're always wanting to get better. So on the flip side of that, which younger players do you think you've had the biggest influence on? I could be totally wrong, but I I know I feel like I've helped um, Hannah Adams a lot just because of I played second base for coach Walton for two years and um, just kind of, showing her the ropes of like she's learning a new position as well she used to be a shortstop so she's I know it's not a huge difference but it is also a huge difference at the same time going from short to second so just like kind of working with her on those types of things and like the change of footwork and stuff I feel like I've been someone that she's able to come to if she has a question about something as well. Speaking of moving positions you've played seemingly every position on the field during your career (laughs) which one is your favorite and why? I think I like third base the best right now. I don't know. I feel like I can't think as much as I normally would be able to at like second base. And like, it's just a quicker position and like you're right in front of all the action. And like, I think just trusting your reflexes is what I really have just been doing and like not thinking about anything. So I like how it's a faster base position there. A few weeks ago, you were drafted by the USSA pride. So it's a chance to not only continue playing softball, but to do it in Florida what are your expectations for playing at that next level and then staying in the mix for the Olympic team in 2020? Yeah, well, I'm really excited and I'm truly blessed to be drafted by them. They were like one of the top teams I wanted to go to just because of all the players that go through that program. And I'm really excited to be able to like learn from like Sierra Romero and play with Lauren Chamberlain and like all these big names are at this team and like this high level. So I'm really excited. And then 2020, how much do you think about Tokyo? I don't know. Like, I think it's insane that it's getting so much recognition now. And like the sport is finally growing and getting the support that it's finally getting. And if I get the opportunity to try out and be on this team, then I'm all for it. And I'm, I'd be really excited to represent our country again. Now, we've talked a lot of softball here, but when you do have time off the field, what do you enjoy doing when you have free time? Um... We us- well, I usually just like hang out with teammates. So usually like Alex or Janelle and Kaylee or Sophia and Amanda. But I like to sit in my room and watch Netflix. And I like to go hang out by the pool and just like tan and stuff like that. Or like randomly go shopping. Just like random things. Nothing too specific. Is it drastically different from California or the the, the beaches comparable? How much have you had to adjust uh, the the chill lifestyle going from Orange <laughs> County to uh, Alachua County? 
Um, I don't think it's a huge difference. Like, obviously, we're not as close to the beaches as I'm used to, but I feel like the beaches here are definitely different. Like, I remember one time I saw someone drive their truck up on the beach. I was like, <laughs> what is this person doing? I was so confused because, like, if you were to ever even get close to doing that in California, you'd be in jail right away. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> I don't think it's like too much difference, like weather wise and stuff like that. Now you mentioned watching some Netflix. I understand you're a huge fan <laughs> of friends. Uh, yeah. We're going to try something complicated here, but uh, I, okay. I, I trust, I trust you can have, you had the game winning hit on Sunday. I think that this is no sweat. Uh, <laughs> if you had to cast a teammate in each role on friends, can you run through who is most, most similar to each character? All right. So I guess I'll start with like the, guys um let's start with Chandler I'd probably put Sophia as Chandler just because she's always making jokes no matter what the situation is for Joey I don't know biggest goofball is probably who'd be Joey <laughs> biggest goofball well I guess then that would be Sophia I guess I can I guess I'll be Joey and she can be Chandler <laughs> that's very kind of you it's very, it's very generous <laughs> and then Let's see, for Ross, I guess Alex could be Ross just because she knows a lot of stuff. For Phoebe, I'd probably put Kelly as Phoebe. Um, for Monica, hmm, I'm trying to think of who's a clean freak on our team. Hmm, maybe Janelle. And then for Rachel, I'm trying to think of like Rachel's qualities and who can be similar to her. The most glamorous, that could be, that's, that's a Rachel quality, right? All right, then Kaylee. <laughs> that's our friends cast <laughs> so we've done it so this is this is potentially a future for you as, as a casting director right possibly it took me a while so i don't know if they'll hire me <laughs> <laughs> well you said earlier that you initially wanted to be in speech pathology and, and then maybe that's changed a little bit now so you know the whole looking at your future i know it's not something anyone likes to do at, at this stage of college but what yeah. does that look like for you beyond softball beyond some of the things that we've talked about I would love to say like more behind the scenes of softball. So not so much coaching and like being on the field and stuff, but I would like to um, maybe start like a foundation or something that works with disabled children and like connect them with the sport of softball and give them opportunities to like meet special people or like their role models and stuff like that. So that's something that I'm really interested in right now. Final couple of things for you. Because the SEC tournament is in Missouri, you're going to be there for over a week. And yeah. it's a place that honestly does not have that much to do. So <laughs> yeah. what will you and your teammates do to pass the time? Because there's going to be a lot of free time out there. Yeah. So I know on Monday we are going to a Cardinals game. That will be a lot of fun. But the other days we're going to just like practice and stuff. But I don't know. Hopefully we'll find something to do. Maybe we'll find a good TV show to watch out there. I really don't know. We'll definitely have to do some searching on the internet to figure out something to do. There could be, it's, it's a lot of solid binging time. Is there anything, anything new on your docket you've got to get to? Um, no. So if you know, if you know anyone with some good TV shows, let me know. And I will definitely <laughs> binge watch them in Missouri. Make sure to tweet Nicole and let her know a, a good TV show to start in Missouri. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> Final thing for you. You have the opportunity this weekend to become the first Gator class 
to win an SEC title every year of your careers, which only one other program has ever done in the SEC. What would that mean to this group of seniors? Um, it would just be something that we would have under our belt. Like, obviously that's something so cool. And it's not just the senior class that's possibly could do it all four years. Like it's each team that has put in so much work and I would just be like so blessed to be a part of something so special. Like I never really thought about how no one has ever done that before, but I think that if we start thinking about it now, then it will get a little bit to our heads and like, obviously bad things can happen if you do that. So just focusing on like, small things right now and day at a time and just stuff like that. So I don't know. It'd be really exciting to be a senior class that's like known for something like that. Well, we certainly hope that happens for you. And also uh, more presently, we hope that you do not get too bored when you're up in Missouri for a week <laughs> plus. So thank you so much for your time and, and good luck the rest of the season. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow baseball and softball this weekend through FloridaGators.com, and be sure to come back next Thursday as we'll recap their results and more across the Gator Nation. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you on the road.